Let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. And we're in the last week of a series called Life Verse, and I haven't even taught yet. Uh, you guys are going to hear from four different communicators in this series. And what has made it so fun is we made this interactive. You notice that big wall out there, which is filling up? We've been encouraging people to write their life verse and then why it's your life verse. And it's been astounding. I read three last week. I'm only going to read one this week. And it's from Amanda. And she came up to me after the service. So I was able to put a face uh, to a name. Amanda wrote on the wall, she never knew I was going to read this, that her life verse was Isaiah 46.4, I have made you and I will carry you, I will sustain you, and the key verse, I will rescue you. She said, there was a point in my life where I came to believe in God. I knew he existed, but I never was able to walk in him. She was never discipled. I found alcohol toward the end of high school, and that carried me into relationships and to marriage. My identity was dark, and my self-seeking took me down a path of destruction, drinking daily and secretly, adultery, abortion, and complete isolation from the world around me. In July 2015, I was exposed and hit rock bottom, lost everything that meant so much to me. My husband, my marriage, all my relationships, respect, and she said I wanted to die. During this time, I fell on my knees and begged God once again to help me because I was ready to take my own life. But I have never felt such a complete and sincere surrender. I put down the bottle and I sought help. Over a period of six months separated from my husband and changing from the inside out, I was sustained into a reborn Amanda. God spoke with my husband and rather than divorce me, he took me and my change uh, gradually, I began to grow in sobriety and it led to his forgiveness. Here's the verse, God rescued me, isn't that cool? over and over again throughout my life, patiently and gracefully. The verse has come up so many times during my attempt at walk, but now it has stuck with me as God has always promised, and I see that now. As a result of my surrender to God and to sobriety, my husband and I now have a relationship, a friendship, and a bond in Christ. There are no words for the amount of gratitude towards how God provides. And it was so, that's worth a hand clap, by the way. By the way, this person's in your church, and there's hundreds like them on that wall. And to see her redeemed right in front of me this morning just made my day. And there's so many stories. We can't know everybody, but you can all share your stories. A life verse isn't elevating one verse above Scripture. It's just a verse that has been called out of us. It's an anchor. It stabilizes us. Uh, many of you have shared that it has carried you your whole way. Uh, first service, when I was coming into the service, a lady was writing hers out. And I said, oh, what's your life verse? And she shared it with me, and I was so moved. The only problem is she was drinking Wawa coffee. And I had to tell her, we serve La Cologne, which is so much better. Stop buying Wawa coffee on Sunday morning. Now I get to share my life verse. Joshua 1.8 says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night and observe to do or according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have great success. Now many of you aren't surprised that this is my life verse, right? I mean, I'm a Bible teacher. I love God's word. I've loved it from day one. 35 years later, uh, my love for God's word has not diminished. I'm as curious and in love with the word of God as I've ever been. And uh, I look forward to reading it, even though it's my job. 
uh, it's not a job. And so this is easy as my life verse. And I'm going to spend some time on that part of it, but I want to go to the back end of the verse. And remember, this is God speaking. God says to Joshua that if this book of the law does not uh, depart from your mouth, if you meditate day and night and observe to do all that is written in it, listen, then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have great success. I think sometimes when Christians hear the word prosperity or success, uh, we struggle, if we're honest. We, some, some of us recoil at the idea. One of the reasons we struggle is Jesus' very words. But one day, Jesus had a man come up to him and say, I want to follow you. What's the key to eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you got to sell everything you have and then follow me. Well, you read things like that and you think, well, I don't think God wants us to be prosperous. Uh, Jesus told a parable about the folly or the stupidity of a man who God had blessed. He had filled his barns and then he built a bigger barn. And his soul was required of him that day. Other words of Jesus were to carry our cross. He talked about prayer and fasting. Uh, he said he had nowhere to lay his head. Another reason why I think we recoil at this is there is an aberrant teaching within Christianity called the prosperity gospel. Some of you have may have heard it on radio or television. This is the theology, really concordance theology, where you pull verses and say, God wants us to be rich. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. We're the king's kids. Therefore, uh, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for us. Um, nothing is farther than the truth. There, there's a grain of truth in that gospel. But if you put it all together, it's just made preachers rich and the person in the pew has been kind of left in the dust. I'll get to that in a minute. But right here in the Bible... From the very lips of God, he's saying, Joshua, I want you to have success and I want you to prosper in your one and only life and what I've called you to do. It's not out of context. I could have read you Psalm 1 where it says, we'll be like trees planted by rivers of living water, uh, bringing forth in every season, being prosperous. I could read you Ephesians 1, the men and women of faith of Hebrews 11, 3 John. We could talk about Adam and Noah where God said, fill the earth multiply, have dominion, and we can go on and on and on. What we need to do is change our definition of success. We need to stop looking at the world scoreboard, and we need to say, what is success in the eyes of God and in the biblical mandate? See, the problem is we're looking at the lives of the rich and famous, right? We're looking at the people in the dominant culture with all the houses and cars and degrees and titles, etc., and we think, okay, that's worldly, and what we have to do is we have to say, what does it look like in the kingdom of God? To kind of prep you for that, I'll give you a definition in a few minutes, I want to talk about a man named Ricky Staub. My son introduced me to him. My son followed him on Instagram. Uh, they met up this July in L.A. by chance, spent a few hours together. Ricky Staub, at the age of 24, two years out of college, was working for M. Night Shyamalan, whose operations are based right here, right? The Sixth Sense and all those great movies. He was working on The Last Airbender and Snow White and the Huntsman with Charlize Theron. Uh, most people would tell you in that industry, he was living the Hollywood and the American dream. He was in rarefied air for his age. But Ricky will tell you the only problem was he was miserable. By his own admission, he was having a midlife crisis at 24. Can you imagine that? He said it was actually a spiritual crisis. He began to ask the big questions of life. Why am I here? Uh, is there even a God? Uh, what am I supposed to do with my life? 
And he did something he hadn't done from high school. He picked up a Bible and read it seriously. He read the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5 from Jesus, and said, oh my gosh, if, if there is a God, this is the life that matters. He began to read about how Jesus cared for the sick and poor, and he did something radical. He quit his job. Can you imagine that? Ascending the ladder of success in a very difficult industry that would pr promise wealth and success, he actually quit his job. He said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. He moved back to Philadelphia and moved into Kate's Place, a project home shelter ran by nuns in Center City. He started neighborhood films. He said, it was laughable. We're renting a dilapidated warehouse shooting anthropology and Nike commercials. He said, nobody would believe it. He said, the only people that believed in us were Sister Mary and some of the other nuns. He began to study the marginalized. He sat with the homeless in Center City. He said, many of them made poor decisions. They were broken and lo lonely, but he realized they had potential. When he sat with them, he heard their stories. So neighborhood films became really storytelling with a soul. Every story has a soul, he believed. And they began to train and hire some of these people. Neighborhood films has one audacious belief. You're not, you're not gonna believe this. They believe giving the right training and opportunity, the formerly incarcerated can outperform a college graduate, and that's who they hire. Now, if you want to know more about Ricky Staub's story, go out. He's got one of the best TED Talks out there, and that means some of you will tune me off for the rest of this message and just think about Ricky Staub. That's okay. Someone asked Ricky, how are you going to scale this? He said, I'm not going to scale it. This is what God's told me to do. you got to figure out what God's told you to do. Ricky Staub is prospering. He's having great success. And God wants us all to walk that way. God wants every one of us to walk in the fullness of what he has. So next week, little yellow school buses will be back, right? Clog up all our roads, kids go back to school. And uh, we had our little ritual when our kids were growing up, I'm sure you had yours, where uh, we would take their picture in front of the front door. I have no idea why, but that's what we did, right? And then you give them the pep talk, right? Make wise choices. Remember, you're a gaglione. Get good grades. <laughs> you give them the, the bit. Don't follow the bad crowd. You give them this big pep talk. What are we telling them? We want you to succeed. We want you to do well. No one says, look, get straight abs. It doesn't matter. Goof off. Nobody would do that, right? No, no good parent. And it's the same with God. We need to change the definition. To me, the definition of success has always been from the lips of Jesus, that when we die, we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in now to the rest that has been laid up for you from the foundation of the world. The key word there is servant. We are servants of God. Paul said it's required of servants that they be faithful. God has made you a steward. We steward the gospel message. We have to bring that to people. We steward finances, relational capital. We steward gifts and talents. All God's ever doing, saying to us is don't bury those talents, but use them. Success is living out every day, I want to emphasize that, the life God has planned for you. Anybody remember Alfred Hitchcock? Anybody old school people? Remember the opening where he would walk into his profile? That's the Christian walk. We're, we're kind of just walking into what God has already planned.
So God had something planned for me last Monday. I had a terrible start to my Monday. Uh, I left church, something went wrong here. I went to a memorial service. Uh, I came home, I woke up the next morning, no one was home, and this only happens a couple times a year, but it can shipwreck your day. We were out of coffee. <laughs> Major first world problem, right? So I thought, well, I could either sit here and be miserable, or I'll go to Starbucks. I'll get like a venti coffee and I'll see people and maybe I'll get off to a good start. So I went there and I read the paper and sat there for a while. And when I was leaving, uh, there was a gentleman who came over and this is like one of those Starbucks where you have to drive to. And so he comes to me and he says, uh, I'm going to a job interview and do you know where this address is? And I put it into my Google Maps and I said, oh, you missed it by about a mile. And I'm Sure, he's got a car, and he said, no, I took the bus, and if I go back to the bus, I'm going to miss the appointment. I said, look, hop in, and I'll take you there. And you got to be real careful these days with that, right? So I drive him there, and right before he gets out, I said, I want to pray that you get this job. And he's, like, shocked. So I prayed. His name was David. We prayed. He, he leaves. Then I go food shopping. And when I'm food shopping, I got this big order, but the lady in front of me is just getting takeout. I would think it was $6. And I said to the cashier, I said, uh, just put hers on mine. You know, I'll pay. And she looked at me startled. She's like, why? And I said, uh, because I want you to know that God is involved in your life and he's thinking about you today. And she said, okay. And she left. <laughs> now, listen. Months can go by, and I'll never do stuff like that, right? But somehow God got me on a path that day where I was reminded that he has something planned every day. That man getting lost was planned by God, I believe, so that I could interact. And I think that's what our days look like. I think that's what success looks like. I think prosperity and success is a lifelong discovery of the passions, gifts, and talents God has put into us that we would enrich, inspire others for the greater good of the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter how long you live. It could be 33, 63, 93. Too many people are waiting for their ship to come in. Today is the day the Lord has made. God has made us stewards. He requires that we be faithful. The Bible's filled with people who walked out their calling who played to the right scoreboard. Hebrews 11 has a list. There's so many in the Bible. What about contemporary people? Tim Tebow, I think, is one of these people. God has given him a huge platform, and he's used it well. This year, I got to hear Carla Harris. She's the vice chairman, managing director, and senior client advisor at Morgan Stanley. She's one of the most influential women on Wall Street, was named a Fortune Magazine's list of the 50 most powerful black executives in corporate America, sits on Walmart and Harvard board. Guess what she does in her spare time? Makes gospel albums. I'm dead serious. Makes gospel albums and leads her choir. Uh, listen to a podcast from Angela Adderance. She's the senior vice president, runs all of Apple's retail stores. Imagine that job. Guess what her job was before that? CEO of Burberry, company has been around for 150 years. Someone asked her, what's the key to your success? She said, I don't know if I can say it on this podcast, but I sit an hour alone with God and his, the Bible every single morning. Wow. Wow. We don't have to retreat to monasteries. 
We don't have to be Amish. We have to be in the world and not of it. And we can influence the world and have great success. And then there's everyday people like you and me. Stories that we can tell where we've had influence. When I was 21 years old, God gave me two ambitions. One to raise a great family and one to build a great church. 35 years later, I have seen some success in both of those areas. Uh, I'm very enriched by what my family has become in this church. Now, a lot of that was out of the dysfunction I saw in church and family and the powerful community I knew both could be. Powerful community. Church and family to me has never been about houses, cars, sermons, buildings, none of that. In fact, most of our history, we never had those things. Believe it or not, in the Enneagram, for those of you who know that, at my strength, so I'm a person of power, a leader, whatever, but in my strength, I become a helper. Sounds odd. But where, when I put my head on a pillow at night, you know where my joy comes from? That I've helped people through the power of God move a little bit along where they need to go. Pastor Shem will never tell this story, so I'll tell it. His daughter Anna grew up in our church. I remember going to Ray's town when she was in a car seat. Uh, began singing here at 13. And went to college for music and theater. One week out of college, she got a lead on a Broadway play. Yeah. We just sent a busload of people up to watch her. Uh, that, that play won an Emmy, and oh my gosh. I like to believe we had a little part of that. There's a gentleman I've been talking to all summer. He's going to Harvard for graduate school. He's been here all summer. He wants to, uh, he wants to change our divided America in race relations. And he's going to figure that out in Harvard. He's given me books. I've given him books. Uh, last week he came up to me and said, it's my last week. I pray with him. I said, make sure you keep in touch with me via email. That brings me more joy than standing on this stage knowing I've helped him a little on the way. Another gentleman came up to me. He said, I've been here for three months on assignment. I'm in the suites over there. He goes, this church has infused me. My faith again, I can't wait to go back to where I live and bring some of that back to my church. And we could tell stories and stories like this all day. That's why the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together as the manner of some, i.e., don't listen to a podcast and not go to church. But share each other's stories. Share life together. That's the power of community. The Bible says the pathway to success is God's word. It sounds old, it sounds trite, but it was Ricky Staub's path, Tim Tebow's path, my path, and so many more. Joshua, let not this book of the law depart from your mouth. Listen, meditate in it day and night, and you'll have great success. I'm not going to go into it, but you need to infuse in yourself every single day, just like you make regular meals, the word of God. We've taught you many ways to do it. Life verse can be another way. But you have to infuse God's word into your spirit and give him a chance to work every day. Now, this is going to make more sense to you when I bring it in the context. I love God's word. I could have given you any of nine different verses. So why is Joshua my life verse? Because in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, 
Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all these people, to the land I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place the sole of your foot will tread, I have already given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness, from Lebanon, the Euphrates, he gives them the outline of the land. No man will be able to stand with you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. Be strong and of good courage. For you and this people shall divide the land, so forth and so on. Joshua has a daunting task. He's got to take two to three million people through a flooded river, set up camp on the other side, invade and conquer fortified cities that are walled, that are guarded by militia and giants that have been fortified for 400 years. Then he has to divide the land, and every man's going to sit under his vine and fig tree. Did I mention he's 80 years old? He has no standing army, and guess what their one spiritual gift is? Grumbling and complaining. Anybody want to be a leader? Yeah. And God comes and says, Joshua, there's only one way you're going to make it. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth day and night. Now, you have to remember, there's no Bible. Think this through. Uh, we're so familiar with Charlton Heston going up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. We forget that he came down with like a shopping cart. He had the Ten Commandments. He had the blueprints for a tabernacle. And then he's writing the Bible, the first five books. That's what we call the law. And so now Joshua has to believe that these very words are the words of God and this is where his great success will come from. Moses, my servant, is dead. I think you all know, even though the men of God die, the work of God never dies. The one continuity is God's word. Now you gotta hold on and follow me with this because it's very important. Uh, I'm as spirit-filled as anybody in this room. The day of my conversion, I spoke in tongues. I believe God heals. I believe in miracles. I believe in the charismata, the gifts. I don't believe in charismania, the nonsense we see in some of these things, okay? But I'm as spirit-filled as anybody in this room. Joshua was with Moses the whole run. He knew bondage in Egypt. He saw all the plagues dismantle the gods of Egypt. He walked through the Red Sea as dry land. He saw Pharaoh's army drown. He was in the worship service with Miriam and the tambourine. He was on Sinai when Moses got the commandments. He wasn't right there, but he was on the mountain. He saw God bring the manna, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. He saw everyone die in the wilderness. No one in the Bible saw more miracles and supernatural activity than Joshua. Numbers 27 said he would go to Eleazar the priest to get counsel. Remember the Urim and the Thummim? To discern God's will, they had the two balls, the white and black balls, casting lots, right? There was a lot of different ways to discern the will of God, even when the scriptures came to life. With all the miracles Joshua saw, God said, Joshua, it's this book and adherence to it on a daily basis that will be your guardrails and your guide and bring you great success. He was teaching Joshua that faithful and obedience to the word of God would bring ultimate success. The legacy of the charismatic movement has been rich and rewarding. They put prayer 
uh, at the forefront of the life of a Christian. Spiritual gatherings, prophecy, uh, so many things they brought in to our faith. The legacy of the evangelicals has been wonderful, right? Intellectual prowess and great authorship. For some reason, we either want word or power when it's always been word and power. It's always been that way. So my parents are divorced, right? And believe it or not, in a divorce, the kids are the ones that get ripped off. Because now you have two sets of parents. And you got to play this game, like i got to go to this one parent, i got to go to the other parent. That's the way the church gets divided. Oh, i got to run over here to the Word, or i got to run over here to the Spirit. Well, why can't the Word and the Spirit just agree, right? The funny thing is, when Joshua obeys the Word, what happens? The Jordan parts, and the walls of Jericho fall down. But Joshua, your courage and your strength will come from Scripture. So last week, Laura and Pastor Shem shared their life verse. And uh, because I wasn't teaching, I'm out greeting people and getting a cup of coffee. How you doing? And uh, Shem was nowhere to be found. He was hiding somewhere like Gideon. And Laura was at her desk, a nervous wreck. And they're like, how do you do this every week? And... Um, I said, guys, let me give you one piece of advice. If you think there's anything you're going to say or any illustration you're going to do that will change people's hearts, you've already failed. But the day you believe that this is life-giving and can transform someone like Amanda or Ricky Staub, you'll have great success. We started this church with one guy on a guitar and then me teaching. We didn't have men's ministry, women's ministry. We didn't have anything. Because we believe when the word of God was taught, people's hearts would be pricked and they would move out of the pews and say, I want to start this and I want to start that. And a great church builds. The beauty of scripture is that you can take it to the bank. In life, we're going to have success and in life, we're going to have failure. This doesn't mean nothing will go wrong. Far from it. The Bible doesn't hide the failings of of God's people or the things that go wrong. The Bible says don't be surprised when the trials come upon you as though they were a strange thing, right? Ecclesiastes 3, you're going to go through the seasons of life. We're going to lose the ones we love. There's going to be heartbreak, abandonment, and we're going to fail. Every ministry we've ever started here, we thought might fail. And we learn through our failures. I want to leave you in five or six short minutes with three areas where the word of God can make a difference. It's one of 103, but they're the big three. Money, sex, and power. Let's start with money, because we all track in it. We all use money. Uh, Jesus said you have to be in the world and not of it, right? Jesus said you're going to reach the very people you live among, which means you've got to live in the dominant culture, whether it's here, South Africa, wherever it is. Um, I mentioned the prosperity gospel before. Uh, they use a strange verse, 3 John 1, 2, where Paul starts by saying, Beloved, I pray that you would prosper and be in health just as your soul prospers. They build a whole theology around that, that everybody should be rich and healthy. That's a common greeting of the day. But there is truth in it. There's a nugget. Uh, I was in Wawa getting a cup of coffee the other day. Cigarettes are $7.80. My mom used to give me a dollar to go get two packs for her. Seven dollars. Who would smoke 
$7.80, I couldn't believe it. So I thought, well, if you get saved and delivered, and you smoke two packs a day, you're saving $600 right off the bat. I ran into a guy who told me he spends $180 a month on alcohol, and that's not counting restaurants. You're almost up to 1,000. No more clubs, no more bars, no more DUI, no more lawyers. Your cable bill should come down if you're a Christian, right? You don't need Hell's Best offering anymore, HBO. Conviction, conviction. Uh, I kind of added it up. You can save between 12 and 15,000 a year just by becoming a Christian. So you will prosper, all right? But let's get to the reality. The gospel, the true gospel, will always introduce tension into your life. Here's what I mean. When it comes to money, every Christian's got to figure out, how am I in the world and how am I not of it? Every Christian's got to answer, what will my standard of living be? What am I going to give to God's kingdom and the poor and those who have less than me? What is it I'm going to center my life around? And by the way, don't ever let a preacher or a Bible teacher tell you what that is. See, that's the tension of God's word. You've got to figure it out for yourself. It's a lifelong struggle. Paul told Timothy, who was a young pastor, um, to instruct the rich. That's everybody in this room. When we look at world conditions, we are the rich in this world. He said, command the rich in this age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertainty of riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay a hold on eternal life. Timothy, don't condemn rich people. They can fund the gospel. But instruct them on a couple things. There is this age, which is really, really, really short. In fact, somebody just did the algorithm on if your whole life in this life was all suffering in the scope of eternity, which I know can't be measured, but I think he took 14 billion years, your suffering would be .00006. So your living in luxury is only .0006 of all that you're going to live. Let them know there's this age, very short, and there's an age to come. And let them live in the tension. Let them figure it out. The scriptures have helped me and my wife navigate this our entire lives. We had to navigate it when we had nothing, and we have to navigate it now when we have a little more. It's like Paul said, I've abounded and I've been abased and I've learned to be content in any stage. Why? Because godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where you get success in life. We all got to figure it out. So when I read God's word every day, I have to figure out and I've got to remember and I have to be infused with the idea that there's a deceitfulness to this money we traffic in. It deceives me in making me comfortable, secure, not doing God's work. You gotta battle it every day. Listen to what Russ Duthought said. He said, the stringency of Christianity's sexual teachings get most of the press. But the commandment against avarice, which is greed or extreme wealth, 
if taken seriously, can be faced most difficult by far. You can wall yourself off from pornography, and you could avoid people who tempt you in adultery. But everybody has to work, and every day in the workplace is a potential occasion for sin. But the guardrails of Scripture will keep you on a place where you'll never get shipwrecked. Remember Jesus told the parable that some endured for a while, but because of the riches and cares of this world, they kind of left. Scripture will keep you where God wants to get you and will help you relate to money. Let's go to sexuality. Same thing, right? We live in a culture now. We don't know what gender is. We don't know who should sleep with who. I mean, we don't know anything about sexuality. And I keep saying, and I can't write the book. Maybe one of you can. I think we have a revolution on our hands. We have a countercultural message of purity that if the world ever latched onto, it would change their, their universe. That sexual relations were for a person who you were going to make a vow with that would have your back for all time. Of course, we know sexual relations is for pleasure, but it's also a greater reality of the intimacy between us and God, who, by the way, has our back. Romans 8, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Famine, sword, pestilence, nothing will ever separate us. That's the covenant God made with you. And then there's power. Power is the greatest force for good and evil on the planet. Read world history. Um, it's pretty evident. People have wielded power for the right reasons and the wrong reasons. And this is where it always comes back to Jesus. Andy Crouch writes about this in his book, Power and Strong and Weak. Jesus is the greatest example of success and prosperity the world's ever seen. When he said, it is finished, it's accomplished, that was success. His temptation on the day he started in his ministry and his temptation in the wilderness was, go another route. Bow down and worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. You'll, you'll get there a shorter way. But when he said it is finished, he said, I've finished what God sent me to do. I didn't come to build a great army or write books. I came to die for people so they could live. And on the cross, he accomplished that goal. I was at Ken Tannis Memorial Service last week. He was the headmaster at Delaware County Christian School. I was a young pastor. I think I was full-time for about a couple months. I got an invite to a pastor's breakfast, and Ken was bigger than life. He became my mentor and had him speak here. He had his own children. He had adopted children. And um, to hear the stories from faculty, colleagues, and students and his family, um, well done, good and faithful servant. And at the end, they played... Uh, a song, uh, it's one of my favorite songs, when it's all been said and done. And I went up and thanked his wife and she said, you know, the last time we were at your church, you had that band for Sizzling Summer and that's why Ken picked that song. And it was, and they, and they had the memorial on his 58th wedding anniversary. How cool is that? That's success. That's a man whose father was a butcher that's a man and a woman who never owned their home until they were 65 so they could send their kids to Christian school. 
And they would always point to their kids and say, these are our boats, these are our cars, these are our shore homes. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's success. Living out the life, not God called Tim Tebow or Ricky Staub to, but living out every day what he's called you to. A life of surrender, a life to, to looking in the word of God and figuring it out. I talked to you last week about Bible idolatry. A rigid adherence to scriptures minus the presence of God or the person of God. The thing I want to warn you this week about is Bible magic. Bible magic is where you flip to a verse, quote it, and think God's going to act, right? These life verses have been curated over time in people. Uh, God doesn't work that way. There is a systematic infusion of God's word in your spirit. I've never quoted somebody outside of Jesus two weeks in a row, but I think I'll quote Eugene Peterson again. He said, Christians feed on scripture. Holy scripture nurtures the holy community as God nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it, take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into the world, healing and evangelism, and justice in Jesus' name. Hands raised in adoration of the Father, Feet washed in company with the sun. The goal of the series is, what's your life verse? If you don't have one, oh my gosh, what an opportunity. Two, three months, maybe it drops like a penny. That's it. Uh, would you write it on the wall? We're going to keep that up another week. Would you write, it, would you write your story out there? Um, we're going to sit down with some of these people. We're going to film some of these stories. I'm going to keep this going. Because God's word has to be treasured. And I'm so glad to be part of a community that values the word of God, the living word of God. It's what we stand on. I want you to leave here knowing God has your back. He wants you to prosper. He wants you to have great success.